This week on The Truth of It, we give an update on the Israel Folau saga, give some tips on how to vote this coming Saturday. We think of how to pray for the election this coming Saturday. And in addition, we think about, well, how to vote Christianly. Hello, I'm Martin Isles, and this is The Truth of It, ACL's weekly newscast on politics and current events, where we cut through the fake news and bring you what it says on the tin, which is the truth of it. And today, I'm going to start with the obvious issue, which is the latest on Israel Folau. Um, And what we haven't talked about on this program yet is what's been unfolding over the last uh, week or so, which is that on the 7th of May, uh, after a three-day hearing comprised of a three-person panel, which included John West QC, Kate Eastman QC, and John Boltby AM, there was a finding made against Israel Folau that he had committed a high-level breach of the players' code of conduct, um, that is, the players for Rugby Australia. Uh, we're uh, awaiting now a further decision. We're awaiting the finding in relation to what his punishment should be. And by the time you watch this, it may well have happened because it's unfolding at this very second. Uh, but what we all expect is that there will be a decision to sack Israel Folau from the panel. Um, why such a strong uh, punishment? Well, because there's no mitigating circumstances, because in the case of Israel Folau or in the case of any uh, alleged wrongdoing before the the Rugby Australia panel, um, you're looking for mitigating circumstances. You're looking for someone to be repentant. You're looking for someone to have a sign of remorse. You're looking for someone to promise that they won't repeat the conduct. And of course, Israel Folau, believing he has done nothing wrong, and indeed he has done nothing wrong, uh, is refusing to do that. And so the maximum penalty becomes more likely. Um, What's to be done? Well, there will be an opportunity to appeal, but it is an appeal to another panel of three people um, with three new uh, panel members. Uh, Is that going to be constructive or helpful? Well, may well not be. Uh, Ultimately, this could find its way into the courts, but certainly what it means for now is that Israel Folau's career, well, it looks effectively over. Uh, This is a $16 million contract he has signed, um, which is now ripped up. Uh, it's $4 million a year for four years. Uh, also, um, the NRL won't have him as much as Rugby Australia won't have him. That has been confirmed. Peter Beattie came out and said that on behalf of the NRL. This man has lost his career. It effectively looks like it's over. And here's what he said on Sunday. He said, potentially, I could get terminated, which means that there's no more playing contract and therefore no more finances or money coming in. It would be the first time it's happened to me in my life. All the materialistic things I've been able to have over the last number of years are slowly being taken away from me. It's been really challenging, but also it's been encouraging to myself to see what my God is actually doing. There have been many opportunities to potentially make the situation a little bit easier. I could go back and play the game, get everything back to the way it used to be. He's referring there, of course, to the the office of settlement, the signs of remorse, all of the things that could have helped him uh, to maintain his position. But as we know, he's consistently said, well, I'm not for bending because I haven't done wrong and because uh, in the sight of God, I don't believe I can do that. I think it's tremendous courage. He says, the way Satan works is he offers you stuff that could look good to the eye and makes you feel comfortable. And if you follow that path, all the worries and troubles will go away. But it is always the will of God that comes first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you, said Jesus. In fact, there's a couple of scriptures here that came to mind as I read that. And I I guess I tip my hat to a guy for whom posting a Bible verse and standing by the truth of it and saying that he won't back down on it has cost him 
a very great deal. Uh, in Luke eighteen twenty nine, it says, this is Jesus's words, he said to them, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Or Matthew nineteen twenty nine. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, that is possessions, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. Turning, you know, the way we see things in this world on its head and looking at the way God sees these things. And I do believe that Israel Flower has done a commendable thing in refusing to take it down, in refusing to apologize for the truth of that statement, in telling his side of the story and saying that he believes that he can't in the sight of God. But what are the implications of this beyond Israel Folau personally? Well, if quoting a Bible verse is a high-level breach of the Rugby Australia Code of Conduct, that does have a ripple effect. Note the Code of Conduct. It doesn't say that it's a breach of the contract specifically, but the Code of Conduct, which, yes, would be referenced in the contract, but I make the distinction for this reason. There's a lot of people who have said, well, Israel Folau made a verbal agreement to never, ever do this. Well, it's interesting that the panel haven't said, well, he broke his verbal agreement. Others have said, well, there's a special social media clause in his contract that says, you know, Israel, you can't do that sort of thing again, or you can't do it. Well, it's interesting that they don't refer to the clause in the contract that has the social media policy. They refer instead to the code of conduct, which is a code of general application, which is uh, signed up to by all players in Rugby Australia as a matter of course. And so, see, he says there was no promise. He says there was no clause. And it seems that not only on his word, but it seems likely simply based on what we see here. But what that means is that the Rugby Australia general code of conduct is incompatible with key aspects of Christian truth. It says that there are quotes in the Bible, Christian beliefs and Christian conduct, which are worthy of a finding of a high-level breach of the code, which could lead to sacking from the game, even if it costs you $16 million. That means quoting the Bible could get a rugby player sacked at any time in the future. Now, Israel Folau's case in this regard is everyone's case because we all as employees sign up to codes of conduct and many people will work in professional firms like law firms, finance firms, insurance firms and so on. Many people will have accreditations with different bodies like medical bodies, and you know, counselling accreditations and who knows what's professional trade bodies, all the rest of it. Many people will attend universities and have conditions on their enrolment, conditions on their academic status with the university, all this kind of thing. These codes affect, they touch our lives in an endless number of ways. And one of the things that's happened in the last five years or so is that these codes have actually had clauses put into them that are framed around flabby and uncertain terms like non-discriminatory conduct, like not making people feel rejected or hateful conduct or, or, or stuff like this, or harassing people based on their sexual orientation, gender identity, words which can be interpreted and implied in all sorts of different ways. For example against the man who quotes a Bible verse on the internet on his social media account. Now stop for a second and think, well, not just Israel Folau, but indeed anyone. This case actually sets the precedent. I don't mean that in a technical term. I just mean it socially. It sets a precedent 
for others, right across the board. We are here, when I was director of the Human Rights Law Alliance, which is now the, the law firm that ACL often works with that does religious freedom cases, we saw a huge number of Israel Falaus. They just weren't famous. We saw a lot of people who, in their professional work, whether they were school teachers, whether they were managers of, of, of companies, uh, whether they were uh, working in, in professional firms like insurance and law and finance, as I said, or if they were doctors with accreditations from, from the medical board, or if they were counsellors with accreditations from other training institutes, or students who were subject to codes of conduct at university, or, or academics who had, you know, all these people. And in most cases, they did far, far less than Israel Folau. Israel Folau posted something that's potentially quite controversial because one of the words was homosexuals. Not even, not even at that level. And yet we saw them often fired. We saw them often stood down pending disciplinary review. We saw them often hauled in to give an account for themselves. We saw them often lose their professional accreditations. Israel Folau's case is all of our cases. Israel Folau's case has broad implications for Christians living in Australia today. And that is why it's so important, even if you think, well, I wouldn't have said it that way, Israel. It's not the point. We either have to stand with him or against him because we are all implicated in this by virtue of our faith, unless we disown the doctrines of Scripture. And I don't think that many of us, I trust many of us, won't be considering doing that. But you know, there's something else. Not only is it all of our case in, in, that, in that sense, but in another sense as well. I think it tells us something about culture. It tells us something about the re-engineering of the West's moral compass. There's a verse that I often quote when I talk, which is Isaiah 5.20. It says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It talks about the situation you get in society sometimes where morality itself is, is, is reinterpreted, uh, where things that are wicked or wrong are no longer regarded as such or that we're numbed towards them. Our attitude towards them isn't, isn't so hostile. And things that are not wrong at all, things that God might actually say are right and true, are being punished as if they were wrong. I think we're seeing that here. Let me explain to you what I mean by reading a section of Darren Kane's article in the Sydney Morning Herald. Darren Kane, he thinks that Israel Folau's comment was abhorrent. He's not on site at all. He doesn't believe it. However, however, he says this. It might be useful to contrast Israel Folau's conduct in publishing his own summary of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10 against the myriad high crimes and felonies which don't secure you a lifetime ban from professional sport in Australia, Great Britain or elsewhere. So what did Folau not do, he says? He didn't lay a boot into his heavily pregnant wife's stomach while she lay on the floor cowering in the fetal position. Nor did he pick up his ex-girlfriend and hurl her into a garage door at 2am following an epic bender. Folau did not kick the stuffing out of an unconscious man lying in the gutter outside a nightclub. Folau hasn't intentionally smashed an opponent's jaw to smithereens in a premeditated on-field incident. He didn't gouge out an opponent player's eyes with all the fervour of a nine-year-old excising the last skerrick of ice cream from a four-litre tub. Indeed, neither has he orchestrated the running of an illegal dogfighting ring, possessed implements used to give electric shocks to thoroughbreds, or done anything else to raise the ire of the RSPCA. Not even on one occasion has Folau been accused either of unlawfully distributing intimate videos without the consent of those filmed, or of mistreating women in any other way. Never has Folau been caught drink driving, not even after having a 13-hour break from the schooners and thinking he had been under 0.05. Folau hasn't been charged with any crime. Folau hasn't racially abused his opponents, hectored them as monkeys. 
He hasn't sledged opponents as being gypsy boys who should contemplate retreating to their caravan homes. Folau hasn't manhandled referees, assaulted teammates and bashed them to a pulp or stolen money from his fellow players' wallets while they weren't looking. Israel hasn't been caught on video bragging about his adoration of the Bondi marching powder. Never once has he tested positive to using prohibitive substances, either in or out of competition. Folau never placed his bets on opposition teams to win or lose. Folau has never been caught red-handed in the throes of an orchestrated sports cheating or scheming to rig the system. He hasn't even chewed on blood capsules at the crucial point of a pivotal game to stop time. Folau isn't accused of standing over young and impressionable teammates, compelling them to dope, cheat, go to church or anything else with the threat of being expelled from the team if they refused. Now, had Folau done any of those things, then maybe he'd be assured of World Cup selection, because with maybe one or two exceptions, the professional athletes who actually did do those things weren't banned from their sport for life. Instead, what Folau has done, the totality of his conduct, has been to publish material on his social media channels that's been deemed as offensive and a high-level breach of Rugby Australia's code of conduct. Keep this simple. Folau published some excerpts from the Bible and his summaries of them. That's as grave as it gets. It's all there. Folau did none of these things. The extent of his misconduct, which is a high-level breach, something that hasn't actually been argued for some years in Rugby Australia, is speech, publishing of Scripture. And what's been said, actually, it said, well, all of these things that I've just read out, they're not so evil as to cost someone their career. But quoting the Bible verse is. Now, is that not a reflection of where we find ourselves increasingly in the West, where there is a reversal of the very moral compass. Woe to those who call evil good and look good evil. And this is why it is incumbent on people to push back and speak up and tell it how it is and say no. There are things that God loves, there are things that God hates, there are things that God says are right and things that God says are wrong. There is a true moral compass and some of us are coming to a point in this society where we need to own that truth or disown it. And that's why I say we need to stand with Israel Folau. We need to own the truth. Um, Do we stand indeed with our brothers and sisters, our fellow Christians in the world, who the world rejects because of their faith? Because that's been the story throughout most of history, that the world has rejected them because of us as Christians because of our faith, because of reasons like this. Are we going to stand with them? I think we should. And that's why uh, ACL launched a few days ago a public letter, an open letter to Israel Folau to assure him that we stand with him and that many of our supporters stand with him too. Because it's going to be a difficult time for him as he faces the penalty that's being uh, doled out to him uh, in the near future or maybe as this is airing as well. Um, And I think that he needs to know he's supported. And the letter which you can sign says this. It says, Dear Israel, We are among the millions of Australians who are proud to stand with you. We believe that sin is real and salvation in Jesus Christ is the equal answer for all, regardless of our identity or background. We believe that the Bible is God's holy word and should be openly celebrated and spoken without shame or fear. We want to thank you for your boldness, despite overwhelming pressure from some who deny these wonderful, life-giving truths and wish to punish those who promote them. Your example is all too rare in a time when compromise is easy and religious freedom is under threat. By publicly signing this letter, we thank you, 
we stand with you and we commit to pray for you often. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Romans 1, 16. Yours sincerely, you are not alone. And it's undersigned so far by very nearly 30,000 people. And if you want to add your name to this letter, which will be given to him over the coming days, go to acl.org.au and up the top there is a link that says Stand With Izzy. Click on that and add your name to the letter of support for Israel Folau. Well, now I'm going to turn to the federal election, which is coming up on the weekend, on May the 18th, on Saturday. Uh, for those who haven't pre-polled or voted already, um, I want to just deal with this question of, of, of how to actually vote, the mechanics of it, for just a second. I'm not going to go into detail. It can get confusing in this form and all the rest of it. I'm just going to give a couple of clear pointers to keep in your mind if, when you walk into the booth, you forget it all. Remember this. You get two ballots, a green one and a white one. The green one is for the House of Representatives, the lower house. The white one is for the Senate, the upper house. The green one basically says, this is who I want to form a government. It's basically for the vast majority of people living in Australia, a blue team or red team proposition. It's the coalition or it's Labor. Most of the seats in Australia, most of the green ballot places are held. Your local representative is either Liberal or Labor, unless you live in Kennedy and you have Bob Catter, for example, uh, or if you live in uh, Wentworth and you have Karen Phelps. You know, there's a few exceptions. But for the majority, it's a blue or red proposition. So that's not to say you can't put number one next to a minor party. But what I am saying is it becomes pretty important whether blue or red comes first or second in your preference list. Wherever they are, whichever one comes before the other is significant because it's highly likely that your ballot will ultimately end up on one of those two piles. Uh, It'll probably be eliminated, you know, if you put one next to animal justice or something like this, they're unlikely to get the the quota. So, you know, your ballot will, your vote will not go to them. It'll go to your second preference. And if they don't get up, it'll go down to your third preference. And if they don't get up, it'll go down to your fourth preference. Make sure you get the red-blue order the way you want it. That's quite important. Now, you must number every box. You've got to number all your preferences. That's that. Simple. Whoever wins in the House of Representatives basically is going to form government. But it's very different when it comes to the Senate, the big white ballot paper that you'll get, and some will probably be like this. Um, It's a different idea. These people are not forming government. These people are policing the government. They're keeping an eye on the government. They're the guys who you want as the check and the balance, because the government can't get any laws through unless the Senate ticks it off. And this is where votes for minor parties become pretty significant. And I would encourage people to vote for good, solid, robust minor parties in the Senate. There's a very real chance that they could get up. And if they do get up, they actually have disproportionately strong power in the Senate. And that's because when something comes to the Senate for approval or rejection, as is often the case from the government, from the lower house, you get the coalition, Liberals and Nationals usually vote one way. Labor and the Greens will vote another way, but neither side has the numbers to get their way. In order to make up the numbers they need for a majority vote, they look to what we call the crossbench. The crossbench is that collection of senators who don't belong to a major party. They don't belong to the Nationals, Liberal, Greens or Labor. 
They belong to, say, Liberal Democrats. Uh, they belong to One Nation. They belong to the United Australia Party. Pauline, they belong to uh, Australian Conservatives and so on. And after the next election, who knows, maybe the Liberal Democrats or the Christian Democratic Party or Canada's Australia Party or, or the Australian Christians or some other group. Um, that group of people, they need their support. The government needs their support to get laws through. The opposition needs their support to block laws. And so their say is disproportionately powerful over the legislative agenda of this country. So if you're looking at Saturday and you're contemplating the possibility that the red team might win and you don't want them to win, or the blue team might win and you don't want them to win, think carefully about, well, who would you like in the Senate to keep a watch on them? Stop the bad stuff. Let the good stuff through. I would suggest pick some of the minor parties that show up in the Christian in Christian bodies voting guides that are out there and see if they can't get up and see if they can't keep an eye on things from the Senate. That could be an excellent way to use your Senate vote. One more comment on the Senate. Legally, you've just got a number one to six. Or, I mean, the, the, the policy is you number one to six above the line and you don't have to go any further than that. You don't have to number the rest of the boxes and your vote will exhaust at six. There'll be no weird preference deals done. That'll be it. It'll be finished. You, you control your preferences. Or if you vote below the line, if you know the individual candidates and you're confident to do that, you vote 1 to 12. And then you can stop if you want. Uh, you only need the 12. However, there's a lot to be said for going further. There's a lot to be said for numbering beyond 6 and going all the way to the end of the line. Let's say there's 30 parties standing in your state. Number all 30. There's a lot to be said if you vote below the line for going all the way to, what, 175 or however many people are below the line. It could be huge. There's a lot to be said for doing that because by doing that, you actually send a message through your vote who you really, really, really don't want to win. If you just number one to six and none of those six candidates get up, your vote becomes meaningless. It it falls by the wayside. And it could well be that the next person who gets up based on everyone else's votes is a green and you mightn't want a green. I certainly don't want a green. Uh, And if you're in that situation... Better if you had said seven on another party, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, and then number 30 for the Greens, because your vote would have continued to do its work to push your preference for the Greens all the way to the back. So think about it. You're in the booth. You've got your pencil in your hand. If you go to six, you might as well go to the end. And you'll say, yeah, but there's a group of parties there, and I don't really know what they stand for. Fine. Use your discernment and put them in a random order in that sort of soggy center. You guys you like at the top, you guys you really don't like at the bottom, and look, a bit of a lucky dip in the middle. Use your intuition. The party names alone can tell you something. Uh, And that might be how you go. I'd suggest that that's a much more powerful way to use your Senate vote. But just remember, green ballot, government. White ballot, policeman. Um, And work from there. I've also been asked not only how to vote, but how to pray. A lot of people don't know how to pray because they think they might want to pray for a particular party to win, but then they're not sure, is that really God's purpose? I don't know. Look, when it comes to praying, I just think that back to the Bible is a great way to go. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, as I've often said, pray for leaders. Pray for them personally. Pray for them that they would either be uh, righteous leaders or that they'd be strengthened in their resolve if they're already there to be righteous leaders Or pray for their conversion if they stand against all that's good. We should do more of that, I think. Pray for our leaders to be converted and changed and have their hearts changed by Christ. That's a great way to pray. But Paul goes on and says, pray more beyond the personal, but pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we might live uh, peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. He says, pray for some religious freedom. 
that the life of godliness would be life of peace. Why? For this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Saviour, who desires all men everywhere to come to a knowledge of the truth. Because if the godly life is a life of peace, the truth will be spoken. The truth will be witnessed to in the community. The truth will be left alone. People will not suffer for the right reasons. Israel Folau will be able to tell the truth on his Instagram. People will be able to read it en masse and it won't be stopped right? That's the sort of thing that he's talking about. Christian schools will be able to continue to uphold Christian values and witness and evangelize to students in their thousands all over the country without being stopped, and so on. I could, I could continue. So pray that come what may, pray that come what may, that the truth might be able to be spread, that the truth would not be suppressed, but that the truth in God's power and providence would reach many despite the governing, the government situation in our nation. And pray too that we would be able to continue to lead those lives that honour God in all dignity and peace. That's an excellent way to pray if we just come back to the Bible for the upcoming election. I want to turn now to the question of voting Christianly. So I just dealt with how to vote, some of the technical, just a couple of points for you to take, not the whole picture, a couple of points to remember when it comes to the technical aspect of voting. Now I want to come to the ideological aspect of voting. How do you vote in a way that is distinctly Christian? I can answer that question in a number of ways. But one of the ways that people have been relying on is these issues lists, these how to vote matrices with the party names along the top and with a list of issues down the side. What are they, how do they stand on this issue, that issue and the other issue? Now, I think there's a bit of a trap with those. And I say this with ACL having actually done a bit of this ourselves. We haven't done a comprehensive guide like some, but we have had a flyer that's gone out, for example, that lists some issues. It listed, for example, the Lord's Prayer in Parliament. It listed the life issues, euthanasia and abortion funding. It listed safe schools type stuff for for the education system. And it listed religious freedom. And a lot of people said, come on, guys, there's more Christian issues than that. And I said, well, yeah, you bet there's more Christian issues than that. But here's the thing. Voting for Christian issues, just ticking the boxes, it just isn't the whole picture. Let me explain what I I am talking about. You know, when I was younger, uh, I remember a particularly wise guy that I used to know gave me a valuable principle for life. He said, he said, you know, Martin, he said, if you want to learn, really understand, if you want to really understand an issue, he said, don't just learn as much as you can about it. He said, rather... He said, you should grasp the organizing principle that lies behind it. And you know, in a nutshell, that's actually what I think is risky about Christian voting guides, including ACLs. They are simple lists without a backstory. As Christians, we're not just ticking boxes. We're trying to discern something deeper. Those lists don't always betray the organizing principles behind what produced those positions on those issues, the ideology that lies behind them, or the moral condition of their proponents, which is really important in leadership. Uh, Let's consider the Greens, Um, and not because this is just about the Greens, but because this is one case study example that is helpful. If you look at the Greens, one of the few parties I'm really willing just to sit here and say, look, they're doggedly anti-Christian. They are ideologically opposed, and ACL's always had always had that position that we're quite happy to call out the Greens. Um, And we are happy to do that because, you know, if they were elected, the simple reality is that religious freedom would be extinguished. 
huge swathes of the gospel and scripture would be called hate speech, uh, would be ideologically targeted, um, churches themselves and families. I mean, we've seen some of the policies that are produced by uh, that kind of uh, ideology. And the, the gospel itself would be substantially attacked. And yet if I look at an issues list that includes a lot of acts of charity, the Greens do very, very well. There's a lot of ticks on that list. Uh, for example, their refugee intake would be very high, uh, their foreign aid budget would be very generous, um, and their, um, uh, their, their expenditure on the less fortunate and, and, and more needy in our society would also be huge. They're all good things. I cannot deny that, uh, and nobody is denying that. But seriously, what's more important? What's more important out of all of that? Do you know the honest truth is this? To test the moral metal of a leader, acts of charity are not enough, especially when they are costless. Because here's the thing, it's almost impossible for a policymaker to undertake costly acts of charity because all they are doing is spending other people's money with the stroke of a pen. Compare and contrast that with the neighbor love demonstrated through the parable of the Good Samaritan. It cost him, you see. It cost him his time, his dignity, his money, his convenience. He risked his safety. He risked his reputation. It was self-giving. It was sacrificial. It was person to person. It told us something really quite profound about who that man was and his moral fiber simply because of what he gave of himself. Now, a politician with a public purse is a totally different thing. A politician with a public purse might actually just be a whitewashed tomb, as John the Baptist might say. Someone made to look good by external acts of so-called charity, that is spending other people's money, but ideologically corrupt. Actually not someone who embodies that notion that, you know, of righteous leadership. The Pharisees were really good at that, and they were condemned soundly for it throughout the New Testament. So, if I want to do my best to test the moral metal of a leader, whilst those acts of charity, that generosity is really significant, it is not enough. I'm actually more interested in some of these organizing principles which lie beneath their actions, their inner character, the ideas that drive them. Now, character is a tough one to discern. This is one of those organizing ideas, one of the deeper things we want to know about a person. It's tough because without a crystal ball into their private lives, we're left to rely on our gut instincts, uh, what's publicly known about them, their words in public, the sum total of their public acts, but also uh, our gut feeling. Sometimes you can discern something about people just by discerning their manner and who they are, uh, and that can get you somewhere. But ideology, ideology is not so difficult to figure out. Ideology is much easier. And to those who doubt the importance of ideology, the underlying ideology of a party or a person that they carry, just consider what the Apostle Paul said about ideologies. He actually ascribed living spiritual power and energy, driving energy from the spirit realm to ideologies. He said they're driven with great vigor by the unseen realm, and there's a very real struggle. These are part of the very real struggle in which we are engaged. And I've learned that myself, actually, in recent years. I've learned that um, ideologies are alive. I don't know how else to put it. It sounds really weird. But I have learned that. They have a driving, totalizing force sometimes. If I consider, for example, something that concerns me, and people sometimes think, well, you're obsessed with this, the whole rainbow ideology thing, LGBT, queer stuff, and so forth. The reason that's a concern is because it's an ideology that's totalizing. It's relentless. It won't be happy until every last drop of opposition is extinguished. Hence, 
hate speech laws and all that kind of thing. Hence the Israel Folau stuff, hence the legal cases we're seeing. This is an ideological force. This is something that's driving towards a goal. And so what I say is we need to look for telltale signs of deeper ideology when it comes to discerning what's good in leadership. What does the ideology oppose? What does it promote? What is its energy directed at? That matters, and it matters fundamentally. For example, we can ask, what do they think of Christ and the gospel? And in an era of religious freedom concerns, that is not hard to discern at all. And I think above all things, that's got to be a litmus test. That's core, that's central. If they ignore the Easter campaign moratorium, for example, but observe the Anzac Day moratorium on their campaign, well, and do that as a public demonstration of their indifference to Easter, you have to ask a question about their attitude to Christ and the gospel, to Christianity. If they staunchly boycott the Lord's Prayer in Parliament as a statement of their opposition to Christianity and the Christian foundations of that place, if they're just not there because, not just not there because they don't really feel like it, but they're actually boycotting it, one asks questions. If they champion everything LGBT and they attack and they suppress and they legally sanction Christian truth on the subject, it's going to betray to you something of their moral compass. If they believe Christian parents are a risk to LGBT kids and the government should intervene, well, then our hair should be standing on end and should tell us something else about their moral compass. If they believe that life is something over which we have ultimate control, whether we kill it in the womb for convenience or whether we kill it at the end of our lives for convenience, um, well, you've got to wonder about their consciousness of God who made life and owns life. When we vote, we contemplate the scripture that righteousness exalts a nation. But a clear theology of those things tells us that righteousness is more than a collection of external deeds. Because external deeds can be, as the Bible says, filthy rags. Ideas matter. And ideas lie behind the issues. Character matters. And character lies behind the ideas. And so I think we should pray and vote. But we should pray that God would raise up leaders of character by bringing new people to the task, strengthening good people who are already there, and strengthening those, I mean, and saving those who would otherwise oppose him. And we should bear this in mind when we vote, that we're not just looking at issues, we are concerned for the deeper things. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7, said in relation to what? The selection of David as the king of Israel. Thank you again. That was the truth of it. Authorised by Martin Niles, Australian Christian Lobby, Canberra.